All right. Uh, you guys, you have your study guides. I invite you to get those out if you'd like to use those. If not, it's optional, whatever uh, works for you. Um, I know sermons can be weird sometimes, 30 minutes of just sitting there uh, while I talk, and some of you, uh, that doesn't work for you. Uh, that's what those study guides are for. Among other things, it's for you to be able to, to write your own reflections, write your own sermon as I'm up here preaching mine, you know, uh, figure out uh, what God's saying to you, and, uh, and I hope those come in handy. We've been talking about The End, uh, which uh, basically is a series of sermons where we're discussing um, breaking with the past to, uh, to go toward this new future that we think God has for us. Sometimes we want to embrace the new future without breaking with the past, and we're, we're talking about being a little more commonsensical about it. There's not any real way of starting a new chapter in your life without ending the, the one before it. So uh, we're, we're trying to come to terms with some of those things. I talked about dysfunctional families before. I talked about when we mess up and, and how to cope with, with our own failings. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about betrayal. Betrayal. Uh, betrayal is, I think by definition, something like a, a broken trust or a breach of an understanding or contract between two people or between a person and an organization. And betrayal is one of those human experiences that is universal. I doubt there's anyone here who's never been betrayed. If you're so lucky to have never been betrayed, I hate to tell you this, but uh, it will happen. And it's not really a matter of if, it's a matter of when you will be betrayed. And what makes betrayal so hard to deal with is that it's never your enemies or just some acquaintance that betrays you. It's always someone close to you. Someone who says they care about you, someone who should love you. Someone you've spent time nurturing, pouring your life into, someone you've invested in, your own blood perhaps, that betrays you. That's the definition of betrayal. It's someone that you've chosen to trust that lets you down, disappoints you, stabs you in the back, cheats on you, throws you under the bus. You get the idea. That's what betrayal is. That's what makes it, uh, I think, so hard. I think what we usually fail to see, and this isn't just a Christian thing, this is just a human thing, I think we fail to see in the moment after we are betrayed, we fail to see how that response, our immediate response to betrayal will determine the trajectory of our lives. A year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, your level of happiness will be determined in large part based on how you respond in a moment of being betrayed. And I think there are several uh, options before us when someone disposes of you, sells you out, cheats on you, or stabs you in the back. There are usually one of three things that we do. First of all, if you think about it in terms of betrayal being like a fork in the road of your life, you're walking along and then someone close to you out of nowhere betrays you, you do one of three things. Either you stay right where you are and nothing changes. You become paralyzed in the face of that betrayal. And what that does is it sets you up for the same kind of heartbreak again and again and again. Usually it sets you up for the same kind of betrayal committed by the same person or people against you over and over again when your response to betrayal is paralysis. It's kind of like being a Houston Texans fan. Year in, year out, you take the same punishments. Nothing changes. They never have a quarterback and they will never be any good, but you are paralyzed. 
in your Houston Texans fandom. The other two options are taking one of the two uh, directions in the fork in the road. And the first one I think I see people taking is one that is motivated by anger, bitterness, rage. And whether you know it or not, your motivation when you take that path is to exact the same kind of pain on someone else that they exacted on you. You might not even punish the one who hurt you. You might take that pain into your next relationship and punish that person for what they did to you before. But that's where that path of anger and rage will take you, some pretty dark places. The other path at the fork of the road is motivated by grace. I don't know how else to put it. It's a churchy word. But when you take that path your desired outcome is not exacting pain on anyone else. It's not to stay passive and just continue to be betrayed in the same way over and over. This path is all about bringing healing. This path is about forgiveness, finding reconciliation. This path is about overcoming. And so when you are betrayed by someone close to you, you will either become a victim in your paralysis, you'll become an aggressor and want to hurt other people, or you will overcome. You will forgive, you will move on, whether or not that means you stay with the person or the people that betrayed you, and you figure that out. The point is to be gracious, to be an agent of healing, and obviously that's the direction I'm hoping to lead us today as a congregation of people who no doubt have been and uh, maybe feel even today like you are betrayed. What I um, want us to see as we talk about how to overcome when you're betrayed is that betrayal always begins with your dream. Betrayal always begins with your expectations. And usually, if you've been badly betrayed, it's because you had higher expectations. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have expectations. I'm just saying you recognize the fact that your expectations are what set you up for betrayal. Sometimes maybe those expectations should be tempered. Uh, sometimes I, we have too lofty of expectations. But I do want us to see that it's that dream, that vision for how we think life should look that leads to the, the recipe for betrayal, right? So uh, let, me, uh, let me illustrate this some. Uh, if you are a pessimist, who never thinks anything good will ever happen, if you're a human version of Eeyore the donkey, and nothing, you'll never be betrayed. Because you'll never believe in anyone enough to put your trust in them. You'll never think anything good is going to happen, and so you'll never be disappointed by life. But uh, in some ways, the more optimistic that you are, the more you set yourself up for betrayal. I'm an optimist. I'm proud to be an optimist. It breaks my heart when people who have been betrayed uh, choose to build a shell around their heart and they become hard-hearted and bitter and, and they become pessimistic because of what other people have done to them. Maybe you know someone like that. But our expectations are uh, what, what matters here. Let me give you an example. I recently talked with a young woman uh, who goes to church here, and she is so angry at this man, her ex-boyfriend. And she's angry at him. And this is serious. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm laughing, but it's serious. Like, she's angry at him, y'all, because she gave him, she was dating him for four years in her 20s. And after four years... He, uh, he asked her to move in with him. 
She didn't think she should move in with him. She thought she should be married before she moves in with him. But he said, move in with me. And she said, I'll move in with you if after a year we're married. So what do y'all think happened? She moved in with him. Two years later, still no ring. So now she spent six years with this guy until finally she says to him, look, you proposed to me or I'm out. At which point he says, there's the door. And she leaves. Good for her, right? She, she leaves. Now, you might be tempted to say, why would she feel betrayed by him? He never hit her. He never treated her wrong. He picked up the tab at every meal. You know, he took pretty good care of her. Most young women would love to have a boyfriend like this, gainfully employed, nice looking, all this stuff. And, you know, he was just being honest with her about, you know, he didn't see himself marrying her. So why would she feel betrayed? It's because her expectations were here and he only met her here. She had lifelong dreams. She had a vision in her heart that God had given her of what her life should look like. She wanted to be a great uh, wife. She wanted to be a great mother. She wanted to have a secure future. She wanted marriage. She wanted to live in a godly way. And she wanted this, and he was willing to give her this. And that spells betrayal. That spells betrayal every time. Unmet expectations and unfulfilled dreams. Now, that's true in dating, but guys, it's also true in marriage. If you feel betrayed by your spouse, it's because you expected this of your spouse and they delivered here. If you've felt betrayed by God, which I know many have, it's because you felt like God should be this and God was only this. If I've known people that felt betrayed by church before because they thought they would come to church and everybody in the church because of God would be different from all the godless people out there. They thought when they came to church, they would be generous, kind-hearted, open-minded, non-judgmental people who never lie and never act selfishly. Then they come to church and they realize the universal truth that every church is full of hypocrites and then they wind up you know, being angry atheists in coffee houses in Montrose talking about how Christians are such a crock. You know, like, that's, that's the trajectory of your life when you deal with betrayal in that way, when your expectations are here and the reality is here. And the same can be true in your family relationships with your siblings. Some of you have been, I know, you've told me, betrayed by a sibling. Some of you are dealing with betrayal by a sibling in the wake of your parents' death, which is a double whammy kind of situation. Some of you have been betrayed by a boss you thought that you could trust, and then she stabbed you in the back. Some of you have been um, you know, betrayed by a parent or, uh, or a child, even. And that is, uh, that, is, uh, that, that is true for all of us. So... Hear, hear me clearly, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a dream. But I'm saying if you're going to learn how to overcome betrayal, you need to learn that every betrayal begins with a dream. The clearest example from the Bible that we have of this is the story of Joseph in Genesis. This isn't Joseph, Jesus' dad. This is uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. Some of you may know, you Broadway musical fans. And, uh, and they based uh, the Bible story on the musical or something like that. And, uh, and so, no, the, the Bible story is much older, I think. But Genesis 37 through 50 tells the story of Joseph. And Joseph has a dream. And, and here's what it, it says in Genesis 
37.5. Once Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So what this tells us is that Joseph's brothers already envied him. They already despised him because they thought their dad favored him. They didn't like that Joseph got that special coat of many colors, or some of your Bibles say it was a coat with sleeves. Colors are better than sleeves. I don't know why it sounds cooler to me to have a coat with colors than a coat with sleeves. A coat without sleeves sounds really weird to me. I don't know uh, why that sounds weird, but, but uh, I like the coat of many colors. His brothers did not like the fact that his father seemed to favor him. So Joseph has this dream, and in this dream, he is standing tall, and his brothers are all kneeling beneath him, kneeling before him. And Joseph shares this dream with his brothers. Now, you can guess this doesn't go well with his brothers, because Joseph had a dream of rising above his dysfunctional family. That dysfunctional family we talked about a few weeks back, that was Joseph's family. Joseph's like, I'm done with this. God's given me a better dream, and one day you guys are going to bow to me. Joseph's problem was not the dream that he had. Joseph's problem was who he shared the dream with. Be careful, you guys. Be careful how you share the dream God gives you in your heart. Be careful of oversharing the dream God gives you with people who aren't ready or equipped to support you in that dream. Joseph's brothers were not, given they're already you know, despising him, they were not in an emotional or psychological place to hear Joseph's dream and go, you know, we're, we're happy to bow to you one day. Go, Joseph. We're proud of you. Go be greater than us. That is not the kind of family Joseph had. He didn't discern that, and he shared his dream with this family that, that wasn't ready to hear it. Be careful. Be careful, you guys, who you share your dreams with. Some of you come from really functional, you know, uh, you know high, highly developed families like your well-balanced families where you go and share a dream with them and they take you to coffee and they tell you how awesome you are and you tell them you have a dream of greatness and they give you some money and they say they'll pray for you and they'll support you and you believe it because they've always had your back. Some of you are lucky enough to come from those families. Some of you are not from those families and you know it. Some of you come from families of dysfunction where if you go to them with a dream of greatness, a dream of rising above the cycles of your family's past, they're not going to support you in it. In fact, families where dysfunction is the norm will often be really, really good at holding you back from the dream God plants in your heart. Friends can do the same thing, groups of friends. If your friends are dysfunctional people, they are really able and equipped to convince you that that dream you're talking about is not really who you are. You're just like them, and you always will be. So be careful of trusting um, unhealthy people with your dreams. Surround yourself as much as possible with healthy people. So um, it's good to have a dream. Just be careful with uh, who you share it with. I got a feeling that in the room today, I was trying to think of uh, what are my people at the story? I've only known you guys for like 11 months. We're 11 months old now, by the way, 11 months and two days at the story. Uh, next month, we'll celebrate one year. Crazy. One year. And uh, I, I was thinking, what, what dreams have I heard from these people that God's put in front of me? 
And I don't know them all yet, but I, I got a feeling that there are dreams in this room right now, dreams of, of going to a really good school, getting a really good education, dreams of having a life that, is, uh, that has some influence to bring something good about in the world, to make a difference with your life. There was a dream. Maybe some of you have forgotten it, but there once was a dream in your life that you had to live a meaningful life. Some of you dreamed of following Jesus more closely and, and just shining his light wherever you go. Some of you dreamed of having success in your career so that you could glorify God in your career. Some of you dreamed of having a really great family life, a wonderful marriage, a happy home. Some of you dreamed of having a house full of little noisy children. Some of you right now are dreaming of having an empty nest with no noise whatsoever. Some of you dream of financial security. Some of you dream of being generous and leaving a legacy. These are all good dreams. Just be careful who you share them with. Healthy people will always support you in your dreams. Healthy people will hold you accountable to those dreams that God plants in your heart. Healthy people will help resource you along the journey. If you are of the background that dysfunction is all you've ever known, if your family was dysfunctional and most of your friends have been dysfunctional, sometimes you get in a pattern of dysfunctional relationships and you blame other people, but you're the only common denominator in all those relationships and it's you that keeps getting drawn into them. What I've seen happen a hundred times is when someone chooses to follow Jesus with their life, they take Jesus seriously, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and teaches us a new way. The Holy Spirit can teach us how to be more comfortable with healthy people, how to trust our dreams, our ambitions, our hopes in God with uh, healthy people around us and, and God will surround us with healthy people instead of the dysfunctional ones that we have gotten used to. Ephesians 5 says this, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Don't be associated with insecure people who will despise you when God plants a dream in your heart to rise above the level of living that you've been at. When you dream of greatness, surround yourself with healthy people. Okay, so you've got that. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph shared his dream with unhealthy people, and they beat him up for it, literally. They sold him out, literally. Here's how this happens. They are in the field, Joseph's brothers, and they see Joseph coming, and this is what they say. This is right after Joseph shared his dream with them. They said to one another, this is Genesis 37, 19 and 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him and throw his body into the pit. We'll tell everybody that a wild animal attacked him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. That's how dysfunctional people respond to godly dreams. Um, they decide after that that killing him would be a waste. They're going to make money off of him instead, so they sell him, their brother, to slave traders. But first they throw him into the pit, and he stays in the pit for a who knows how long, and, and he's down there alone. And what's important for us to see is that in the Old Testament, the pit was more than just a hole. The pit was symbolic of something else. In Old Testament times, the pit is used to represent Sheol. Over a hundred times, Sheol is referred to as the pit. Now, Sheol, in Old Testament thinking, was this underworld place that all the dead went to lay dormant. It was this place of separation from the living world, separation from the living God. So Sheol is often translated as hell. It probably shouldn't be. The Old Testament understanding was a little bit different. It wasn't just for, you know, ungodly people to go and be punished. 
It was where everybody went and remained separated from God until something happened. And that was the big debate. In Jesus' day, the big debate was whether or not the people that had gone to rest in Sheol would be resurrected on Judgment Day. We have all of our hot-button issues. That was theirs in Jesus' day. The Pharisees believed absolutely everybody in Sheol will be raised up for judgment on the last day. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, which, of course, is why they were so sad, you, you see. That's all I got, folks. It's been good. See you guys later. Just, just kidding. I'm tired, and that's all, that's all my jokes today. So uh, thank you for the courtesy laugh. So, the, uh, <laughs> so uh, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. The Pharisees did. So the Old Testament writers used the pit over 100 times for Sheol, which is where you go when your good is dead. Jesus used the same analogy. You might remember the story where he's talking about religious leaders being like a blind man leading another blind man. He says they both fall into the pit. So the pit is where you go when you die. Now, on some level, I think all betrayal feels like the pit. All betrayal leaves you feeling alone, isolated, betrayed, and dormant and forgotten. Remember that girl I just told you about whose boyfriend wouldn't marry her? She talked about what it was like toward the end. She said that there was such a dark place toward the end of that relationship. She said her boyfriend wouldn't talk to her anymore about her feelings. He said she was just nagging him. Her parents wouldn't talk to her because they were just like, I told you so. You shouldn't have moved in with him to begin with. And her single friends were like, what are you complaining about? You have a boyfriend and he's cute and he's got a job and he pays for dinner. And her married friends were judging her, you know, for, for not being married like, like they were. And she said, it was such a dark place. I felt like no one could hear me scream. I think betrayal is like that. The pit is like that. And if we're really honest, most of us can probably remember a time we were in that place. Some of you, if you're really honest, you might be in that place right now. Some of you feel betrayed by God. That's where you are. I mean, I'm proud of you for being here today continuing to try. If you've ever loved an addict, if you've ever loved an alcoholic, if you've ever had a, a parent who neglected you, or a father who was absent, or a mother who abused you, you know what life is like in the pit. If you've ever had a friend who just threw you under the bus for no reason, if you ever had a boss you thought you could trust and then the next day you lost your job for no good reason, if you've ever been falsely accused by someone you thought cared about you, if you've ever felt like the church wasn't there for you, you know what life is like in the pit where no one hears you scream. That's where Joseph is. When his brothers put him there, you probably are already picking up on this, but one of my favorite things about Joseph's life is how it foreshadows Jesus' life. There's so much overlap here, it's impossible to ignore. Joseph is destined for greatness, and Jesus is destined for greatness. Joseph is his father's favorite son. I guess you could say Jesus was his father's favorite son. Joseph, uh, had, Joseph's brothers denied him and betrayed him. Jesus' brothers denied him and betrayed him. Both his blood brothers, they denied him. And his Messiah, you know, his messianic place, 
before he died, and his disciples, some of them betrayed him at the moment of truth. Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph spent time in the pit, as good as dead, and so did Jesus. All Christians believe that Jesus spent time in death from Friday through Sunday. What some of you may not know is that almost all Christians throughout history have claimed to believe that Jesus didn't just die, he went to hell for a while. We don't talk about this very often, and frankly, it's because the biblical evidence for this isn't super strong. I've given you some verses in your study guides to look over with your small groups or whatever. There's some allusion to this idea, and whether, whether or not you believe it, it's not an essential belief for you to be a Christian. I will tell you this. I love the idea of Jesus going to hell for a few days. I love the visual of Jesus walking into hell on a Friday night. I love it. I, I picture it like hell is a bar and Satan's the bartender and he's there like drying a whiskey tumbler with a towel and Jesus walks in and Satan's like, I did not expect to see that guy down here. And Jesus from across the room is like, I heard that. And Satan's like, I know, I know you did. You hear everything. And, and, and you know, I love the image of Jesus hanging out with the people in hell. I love the image of Jesus like playing poker with like Goliath and <laughs> Jezebel and some of Joseph's brothers, King Herod. You know, I, I love the image. Uh, on, on the one hand, I think it's a lighthearted and fun image. I, but the reason I really love the idea of Jesus having gone to hell is so that the next time I'm in hell, or the next time you're in hell, a living hell, that state of mind kind of hell where no one hears you scream, you can take solace in knowing that Jesus not only knew the way there, but he knew the way out because he didn't just go there to stay. He went there and came back and initiated his movement of mercy that death and sin could not abide. And that's the reason that we are here today. Jesus didn't just know how to get to hell. He knew how to come back from it. And so when you find yourself in that place of deep darkness, you can trust that Jesus knows the way out. And when you are there and you feel alone, you call on his name and he will come and find you because he knows the way there. And when he comes to find you, you can ask him to deliver you from it because he knows the way out and you can follow him. This is why I take solace in the idea of Jesus laying among the dead and even overcoming hell itself. You can trust that Jesus knows the way out. One of the most heartbreaking things I see when people are betrayed is before the betrayal, they were full of light and life. Before the betrayal, they had a clear vision and a dream. And somehow the betrayal or the betrayer robs them of that. And in their time in the pit, they become convinced that that dream was foolishness or that they're not worthy of that dream anymore. They need to tamp down their expectations and maybe not dream so lofty a dream. Sometimes the pit changes us. Sometimes people go there with a dream and come out without it. There's this young couple. They don't come to this church, but I love them so much and I, uh, I've walked with them through some of their challenges over the years, 
part of their challenge, they've been, they've been married for years now, and, and uh, their main challenge was fertility. And they just could not conceive. And they, they had a couple of miscarriages, a couple of false hopes, and then they were gone. And uh, if you've never struggled with that particular issue, it's really hard to understand the depth of the burden and the weightiness of that problem. It affects everything. Every area of their marriage was affected. They stopped going to church because church was so full of happy families with perfect little kids, and they had to see it. And everybody would, if they didn't know them very well, they'd come up and ask them, you know, how many kids do you guys have? And every time it was like taking a bullet to the chest. So they stopped coming because they couldn't face it. They felt so betrayed by God who they thought gave them this dream to begin with, this dream of being a great father and a great mother. They had those dreams in their hearts before they even met each other because they both had great parents and they were blessed by their parents and they couldn't wait to bless a child of their own, but it was not meant to be apparently. And their time in the pit, it kind of hardened their hearts a little bit against that dream. They eventually decided to just give up on that dream altogether. That dream they were ultimately convinced of years before was now non-existent for them. And so they started to act like they never wanted it to begin with. They kind of came back around to church. And people asked them about their kids. And they said, oh, we, we don't really want kids. Everybody with kids looks really unhappy. And we really love to travel. And they, they would sit down you know, with parents of children and talk about all their travels, kind of rubbing it in parents' faces because parents never get to travel anywhere except Disney World, you know, the least happy place on earth. And, you know, like, uh, and so, you know, they would kind of lash out in that way. You know, they'd say, we're career-oriented now. We love our jobs and we love our dogs. We don't really have room for kids in our lives. And so they found their way back into church by doing that. It got a little bit easier. And then they were just open enough to God's leading still, even though they felt betrayed, to combine their love of travel with their love of God. And so here's what they did. They, they signed up one day to lead a group of missionaries, just regular folks, to China to work as undercover missionaries in a Chinese orphanage for a couple of weeks one summer. You can't go out and preach the gospel openly in China. You can't go start churches openly. You just have to live the gospel in places like orphanages, and the church is spreading like wildfire there. So they go there, and to the first orphanage in Shanghai where they're working, uh, they meet a young boy, a one-year-old baby boy named Sam. Sam had been given up by his birth parents because he was born deaf. 98% of children in Chinese orphanages have some birth defect, and they are given up because of that one-child rule um, that was in place for so many years. So they met Sam. And the moment they met Sam, they knew what God had been preparing them for all along, not assuming at all that God gave them the burden of infertility. But I will tell you this, God took the problem of infertility and adapted the plan and adapted the dream to make it come about. And they knew exactly why they were there. It was such a perfect ending to this whole struggle that the guy, the husband in this relationship, he actually knew sign language before he even went to China. It was, it was, 
It was a match made in heaven. And a year later, they brought Sam home with them for the first time as their son. A month after that, the craziest thing happened. The woman, Sam's mom, started feeling sick in the mornings. She started feeling queasy and weird. Some things that usually happen didn't happen for a couple of months. And a few months after that, Sam had a little brother named Aaron. A few years after that, my friends decided they had room in their hearts and room in their home to bring one more child into the fold. So they went back to China and came home with Ginny. I think we have a picture of the three kids, the children of promise. Can you imagine what would have happened had they completely given up on the dream God dreamed in their hearts years ago? But they refused to give up. They refused to completely close their hearts off to the idea that the dream was still alive. And as much as they refused to give up, God refused to give up even more. And God worked in their circumstances and made their dream come true. You see, when Jesus leads you out of the pit that you were in, he doesn't expect you to leave the dream behind that you took to the pit with you. When Jesus led my friends to China, he didn't lead them there to... to, 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 you know, help them forget about the dream they dreamed. He brought them there to fulfill the dream that they had dreamed. And when you find yourself in the dark places of your walk, the same is true. If you let Jesus in, he will use your time in the pit to make your deliverance from it even sweeter. So today we've talked about surrounding yourself with healthy people. We've talked about trusting Jesus, that he knows the way out, whatever hell you're in. And finally, never forget the dream that God gave you. Never forget the dream God gave you. We know that Joseph never forgot the dream God planted in his heart when he was 17 years old. Joseph, uh, even though he's, his brothers threw him in the pit, sold him as a slave. Even though Joseph became a slave and then he got thrown into prison for something that he didn't, a crime he didn't commit. Joseph kept believing. Joseph kept working and kept seeking God's face in the middle of it all. And eventually God raises Joseph through the ranks, and he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. About that time, there's a famine in the land. The whole region is starving. Egypt is the only place that has any storage of food. Joseph is overseeing the ration line where people from in outlying areas are coming in to get food. And out of nowhere, Joseph's brothers appear at the front of the line, bowing before him, asking for his mercy. They don't know who he is. They just know he's the man with the food. They don't recognize him, and this is what happens next. Genesis 45, 4 through 15. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored here and all that you have seen here. 
Hurry and bring my father to me. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Guys, all I want us to see today is that God has given each of us at some point in our lives a vision, a dream for how our lives were meant to be, for the direction our lives were meant to take. You once had a dream, whether or not you remember it now. There once was a God-given dream in your heart. Maybe you've buried it, or maybe someone, a betrayer of yours, has convinced you that you're not worthy of that dream anymore. That dream to make a difference with your life. That dream to make enough money to be generous and to impact those in need. That dream to be successful in your marriage and to be a good dad or a good mom. That dream to be a closer follower of Jesus. God has given you that Dream. In the depths of your dark moments, you will be tempted to give up, to forsake it. It's in that moment I'm begging you to call upon the name of Jesus, to trust that he knows how to find you wherever you are, no matter how deep or dark the place that you are in. And even better, he knows the way back from it. And whether or not you remember the fullness of the dream God planted in your heart, I can promise you this. God remembers the dream, and God's promise never fails. The dream you think was long forgotten will be fulfilled by our God. Trust that today as his daughters and as his sons.